all need a pick-me-up during this coronavirus shutdown, right? How about cheering for a horse named My Friend's Beer? We'll tell you about his chance to win a division of the Arkansas Derby. Plus, one of the benefits of this COVID-19 shutdown is that we get to see, in virtual form, what would happen in a Kentucky Derby run by all 13 Triple Crown winners. We'll talk with a man who knows an awful lot about all of them to see who he thinks would win such a race. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll silent. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And just think, you can help the Mensa members down at America's Best Racing discover the show. You all read The Little Engine That Could, didn't you? We think we can. We think we can. This year's Kentucky Derby will, as you probably know, be run in September. Only once before has the race been staged outside of the last week of April, first week of May time frame, and that was 1945 when it took place in June, at the end of World War II. In the race's 145-year history, there's something else that's only happened once, at least officially, and that's a Maryland bread wearing the roses. That was Kawhi King in 1966. Two years later, Dancer's Image crossed the wire first, but was then disqualified for a positive drug test. That drug, phenylbutazone, is legal today for horses, making Dancer's Image the Jack Johnson of thoroughbred racing. Jack Johnson, the former heavyweight boxing champion, had to leave the United States because, for all intents and purposes, it was illegal for Johnson, who was black, to be married to a white woman. Incredibly, by the way, that federal law wasn't struck down by the Supreme Court until 1967. In any event, a horse with a name that will definitely draw support is trying to become the second official Maryland Bread Derby winner top of the stretch more than a quarter of a mile left to go my friends beer looming up deep to start of the track of the yellow cap coming now perhaps up head in front my friends beer paint music for me resurgent now and coming back toward the inside my friends beer my friends beer paint music for me my friends beer paint music for me my friends beer in the new year my friends beer has already raced eight times in his career He has just one win in a waiver-claiming race at Laurel, but he's hit the board in each of his last six races, including a third in his first try outside Maryland at Oaklawn in an allowance-optional claimer last month. He'll try to qualify for Kentucky in the first of two divisions of the Arkansas Derby, where he'll break from post two. And to talk about him, we're pleased to welcome two of his owners, Jason Scott and Dan Heim. They're part of the group they call Designated Hitters Racing, and they join us here on In the Gate. Do I dare ask Dan where the name comes from? It started with last year's Breeders' Cup. Uh, So Shamrock Rose won the sprint there at a big price, and uh, I was lucky enough to cash a a decent-sized ticket on her. So she was in the back of my mind when we were looking through the auction. And uh, I, I saw this horse. He's actually the, the younger brother of her. And she sold at $2.5 which I think was, was really exciting. And 
so everybody kind of knew who she was. And it turned out that her younger brother, which we looked at in the auction, was was on the smallish side. He was kind of born late. And so we took a look at him after the sale and we, we were lucky to get him. I mean, I was I was thrilled to have Shamrock Rose's bloodlines in our portfolio of horses. So then we, we need a name. It's always tough to kind of name a horse. And we said, look, his sire is Stay Thirsty. And so we, we thought about he's the world's most interesting man. He's got uh, an entire week dedicated to him by sharks. Yeah, there's a lot of funny, <laughs> funny twists on it like that. And uh, so we kind of came up with, all right, you know, stay thirsty, my friends. It turned into my friend's beer. And it, it, it was kind of a twist like, look, nobody, nobody wanted him in the auction. So, hey, nobody wants to drink their friend's beer. So we turned him into my friend's beer. And I, I really think he's uh, a named horse in the race. So we're, we're excited about it. So if you guys are mainly from Maryland, I guess you root for the Orioles. Jason, how tough is that to do right now? <laughs> I have been a diehard Orioles fan for over 40 years. And uh, for the first 10, back in the uh, late 70s and 80s, it wasn't that tough. But it, it's been a rough last uh, 20 or 30 years. Well, I'm a Mets fan. I can commiserate. So how did this group come together? Yeah, so I grew up just outside of, I mean, walking distance from Pimlico race course. Dan grew up in Ocala. So Dan had owned horses for a long time. I grew up betting on horses, but obviously I, well, not obviously, but I didn't know anything about owning horses. I ended up being a professional investor. I invest in real estate and businesses and other things. And I've always loved horses. And when Dan and I met back in around 2015, 16, our kids went to school together and he told me that he was investing in race horses. I mean, I naturally was really excited because I love horses. I love investing. And so I said, if you ever need a partner, let me know. And a few months later, he said, I'm looking for a partner. We bought a couple horses together, we had a little bit of success. And a bunch of our friends from around the country started inquiring. So back in 2017, I guess, Dan and I said, hey, let's start a little group and we can bring in some friends as, as minority uh, investors. And that way it can kind of be a whole friends thing. And one led to two, led to three. Now we have about uh, a dozen investors in the group, all friends of ours from around the country with different interests in, in racing. Some just like going to the races, some love horses, but it, it's become a great group and we're all really friendly. And so it's been great. Now this horse, my friend's beer made a late rally from sixth to finish third in the race last month at Oaklawn, his first time away from Maryland. Dan, what did you notice about that race? Yeah, we were looking for a spot to run, right? It, it's kind of tough with, with what's going on with all the tracks being shut down. I mean, you, you never really want to take a state-bred horse out of his state to run somewhere else. But, you know, the spot came up, so we, we took a look and, and we shipped out there, not necessarily thinking we, we were going to run. We knew we'd, he'd be facing a really tough bunch. And I mean, it's well over a 16-hour van ride from Maryland out to Arkansas. So this, this poor horse, he had a, he had a long trip, and he... He looked fantastic. He got a little flat into the top of the, the turn, the far turn. And once he figured out that he needed to switch up and the, the jockey kind of got after him a bit, he realized what he was supposed to be doing again. And he really took to the surface and he was moving late. And when, when the race finished, we said the same thing consistently about him. When the race ended, he needs to be stretched out a little bit longer. He's always, he's always closing late. He just doesn't have enough time. The races are too short. That's why we think a mile and an eighth is, is perfect for them. They're really hard to find. There's not a whole lot of mile and an eighth or, or longer races for the younger horses. So we, we think this is a, a great opportunity to finally see him stretched out. He's, he's built like a marathon runner. 
he's a lighter framed horse. I mean, he's probably about 300 pounds longer mm. than most of the horses in this race. So you really got to take that into consideration. Jason Scott and Dan Heim of Designated Hitters Racing join us here on In the Gate. They send out my friend's beer in the Arkansas Derby. Now, it seems from what I've read that you're not just a group of friends who buy some horses to run, like you said. Did I not see Designated Hitters Racing listed as a breeder as well? Yeah, that that is correct, uh, Barry. We we do. This is our first year of, of getting into breeding. We're excited. We have two foals and one on the way. Right now, we've we've got our our colt, and we've got a, a young filly. We're we're super excited about him. One of them is out of a first time sire. No, never, no more. He's a three quarter brother to No Name Ever, which is one of the highest priced stallions in Europe. So it's really exciting to bring like an international flavor in in horses to the area. And the Maryland bred incentives are fantastic. So um, yeah, we're we're super excited about taking on that. The, the the breeding side of the business now as opposed to just picking up two-year-olds and and seeing where they go now my friend's beer is up against some big boys in his half of the arkansas derby including governor morris for todd pletcher anno de or who was second in the breeders cup juvenile and potentially bob baffert's next justify in charlatan so jason how do you feel going up against these guys yeah, I love our spot here. I mean, the uh, the number two position next to Charlottesville, I think, is actually going to be good for us. We've had some bad luck in, in the recent past, but I think uh, hopefully Charlottesville will have a, a good break, and, and that way we can uh, we can get out of the gate quick. We can stalk, and, and we get that, that close to the rail position. So I like our position here. This isn't the first race that we've gone in as, as a big underdog, and, and we're confident that this horse is going to like the distance. This horse has a ton of heart. So, yeah, it's, it's tough competition, but if there is any horse we've ever owned that I want going up against this competition, it, it's my friend's beer. He, he's got the heart, he's got the guts, and uh, I think he'll put out a good showing. We would be remiss if we also didn't bring up another of your three-year-olds, a filly named Ilchester Cheetah. The field turns into the stretch. Ilchester Cheetah has the lead, kicks clear here. Ilchester Cheetah in front by three. Kansas Kiss is now moving into second. It's Ilchester Cheetah trying to hold off Kansas Kess, and she's done it. Ilchester Cheetah by a length. She looked like she was rounding into form before the shutdown. Two straight wins at Charlestown and Aqueduct. She's already run nine times, and that's with a shutdown. My friend's beers run eight times. I guess you guys don't subscribe to the Bob Baffert theory of lightly racing your horses. What are you planning for Ilchester Cheetah? Yeah, that's uh, that's great that you recognize some of our horses here. I really appreciate that, Barry. First, she's actually named after uh, our kids' elementary school. So Jason's kids, before he moved, uh, also went to Ilchester Elementary. So I know there's going to be a lot of teachers and students that end up listening to this and are super excited about whenever she races. So she is a early speed sprinter. So it's an interesting dynamic where we have my friend's beer and then you have Ilchester Cheetah, who is the complete opposite. She loves to break early and speed away. So right now she's still in Maryland. We're, we're trying to find the perfect spot at her age and with all the, the conditions. And she's a New York bred. So we'd, we'd really like to, to get her up to New York when that racing reopens. But in the meantime, we're just going to keep waiting with her and, and see what's next. How are you guys handling the shutdown, including not being able to be there with your horse for the Arkansas Derby? 
uh, I'll be honest, it's it's tough. So we're lucky that we do have a number of two-year-olds that have never run. So this gives them a chance to kind of mature. But between my friends Beer and Ilchester Cheetah and a couple other names that we have, it's certainly been difficult. Our horses like to run. They, they enjoy it. And uh, so it was part of the decision, part of the reason for the decision to uh, to ship a couple of those horses to Oakland. Like Dan said earlier, it was a long trail, long travel, 16-hour trip. But ultimately, I think it was the right decision because uh, it gives the horses the opportunity to do what they love to do. And we certainly wish you the best of luck. Jason Scott Danheim, Designated Hitters Racing. Thank you guys so much. Best of luck in Arkansas. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry. If all 13 American Triple Crown winners raced against each other, what would happen? Rather than seeing it virtually, we'll bring in a real-life expert to ponder that question. That's next as the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In The Gate. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. American Pharaoh rules the derby. Seattle Sleuth opens it to four lanes. The firm's got a nose in front as they come on to the wire. All rise for Justify. The Kentucky Derby was never in doubt. What would happen if you ran the Kentucky Derby with all 13 winners of the American Triple Crown? It's a novel idea one that is happening virtually during what would be the broadcast of the actual Kentucky Derby on NBC. In case you missed it, the real Derby will be run on the Saturday of Labor Day weekend. The virtual race accounts for all kinds of analytic data to give a fair representation of how such a race would be run. Well, he may not be a mainframe computer, but when it comes to thoroughbred racing, Ed Bowen is as close as a human can get. In addition to being the president of the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation, which funds veterinary research for horses of all breeds, Mr. Bowen is also the author of more than 20 books about the history of thoroughbred racing in the United States, including Lucky 13, the history of all of those Triple Crown winners we referenced. Full disclosure, I narrated the audiobook version of Lucky 13, which makes a lovely gift, by the way. I did not, however, work directly with Ed Bowen on that project. I worked with the audiobook publisher. We can think of nobody better suited to give some handicapping perspective to these 13 special horses than Ed Bowen, whom we welcome for the first time, surprisingly, here to win the gate. You wrote that War Admiral, the 1937 Triple Crown winner, did a workout of the entire derby distance, a mile and a quarter, during the week leading up to the derby. Then, three mile-and-a-half works before the mile-and-a-half Belmont. I don't know which part of that is more astounding, considering how horses are trained now. How can you compare these horses when the training methods are so different? Well, as you probably know, I, I, made, a, I made a point in writing the book not to rate them because I knew I would be tempted to try to you know, justify pun intended my opinion. So I, I didn't do that in the book, but I've thought it through and I'm perfectly willing to do it conversationally. The thing about Sir Barton is that there's, there's several things, but one is that in those days, the Kentucky Derby was not weight for age. He, he got seven pounds from the runner up and 10 pounds from the third horse in that race. And Sir Barton's, as you say, his jelly feet compromised his form. There were a couple of races including a race at Saratoga at four that sort of got him into the match race. So you could say if, if he could reproduce that form consistently, 
he wouldn't be your last horse. But to me, uh, I'd have to rate him 13th. It's reminded me, thinking of this, as a, I remember going to Breeders' Cup races and you see, gosh, this is an amazing field. And yet one of these horses is going to finish last. So it's, you're not insulting a horse to say he's the He's the 13th of 13 Triple Crown winners. But ironically, in the Blood Horse compilation, they had a group of seven historians and handicappers and so forth rate the top 100 horses of the 20th century. And in that one, Omaha came out as the lowest rated. He was 61st in that exercise, whereas Sir Barton was uh, was 49th among all great horses. And it was Sir Barton 12th and Omaha 13th. Uh, excuse me, 10th and 11th. Uh, at that time, there were only 11 Triple Crown winners by the end of the t- of the 20th century. But yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with Sir Barton as the, the horse that's on the, the bottom of my list. Now, War Admiral had constant gait issues. Would you throw him out against these kinds of horses, or do you think he'd get over those issues? I think he would, if, if, if by magic he could uh, be racing against these horses, I think that he'd have been schooled enough to the gate. At the time he was running, the gate was fairly new, and they probably didn't have the gate crews who really were as good as they are now. Trainers didn't have much experience about getting a horse into this contraption, so I think he'd have been, he'd have been fine. I have him, by the way, sixth of the, of the 13. That's the, Interesting. He was an amazing horse, but the thing about even Triple Crown winners, none of them had perfect careers. So in an exercise of what you forgive a horse, what you think he could do, I've had the privilege of voting in Eclipse Awards and and Hall of Fame for many years, and I always try to discipline myself and not give a horse credit for something that I think he, he or she could have done but didn't do. By the same token, you get into situations of how much do you forgive a horse based on events of its life that that you think compromised his his or her form. So it's really a a great exercise. If they come up with algorithms that make us all feel that they have adequately and accurately compared rated horses 1 through 13, we better suppress that information because that would spoil the whole magic of horse racing. If you could tell what was going to happen before it happened, that wouldn't be a very interesting betting proposition. Well, I'm no computer mainframe, but your book at least does a very good job of talking about running styles of all of these 13 horses. And so to handicap a race with 13 horses in it, you have to talk about running styles and how much pace would there be and who'd be the mid-pack horses and which ones come from far out of it. So let's try to set this up. Let's talk about our pace setters, our tactical horses and our closers. Well, the horses who, uh, if you had this magical field, there'd be there'd be some trainers say, you know, we we can't get by with going to the front against this group. But taking that out, I, I would think your your pace would uh, certainly you'd have uh, Count Sleep and American Pharaohs. Some of his best races were on the lead, and I think you'd have those two uh, up near the front, and uh, probably Seattle Slough Secretariat's. The signature race, of course, was the Belmont with him going to the front. They continue down the backstretch, and that Secretariat not taking the lead. He's got it by about a length and a half. That wasn't his regular style. He was perfectly good at dropping way back sometimes. So I I think those, the three I named would be uh, 
would be likely to be the pace in the in the early part of the race. You'd probably have like Sir Barton or Sir Barton maybe right behind them, War Admiral probably right behind them. There would be an awful lot of racing luck <laughs> taking place because you have you have so many horses whose style was what we would call stalkers rather than closers, and that would be such a thick and knot of horses going into the first turn that, that some somebody would lose a lot of ground. But I'd think you'd, you'd expect uh, a firm to be fairly close. He was a wonderfully versatile horse. There goes a firm with a rush. A firm takes command by ahead. It's going to be a firm. A firm escape ball that is going to win this 104th running of the Kentucky Derby. Alador is second. Well, it was a firm stalking the early pace and quickly moving to command and never letting it go. Good friend of mine, the trainer John Russell, said in, in awe, he said, gosh, he's, he's perfectly happy to be on the pace way back or near the front. So He'd probably he'd be want to be a stalker and uh, and probably Justify would as well and uh, Gallant Fox and Omaha would be a little bit farther back. Citation could do anything. Uh, he'd he'd want to be fairly close, but uh, he could drop back if he if he needed to. Interestingly, of course, Eddie Arcaro rode Whirl Away and Citation, and he'd only get to ride one of them in a race like this and you know with such great horses involved here of course this could be a jockey's race so in which jockeys would you have the jockeys of the triple crown winners in which jockeys would you have the most confidence oh well i'm of the age that you'd always start with our carol <laughs> and then uh certainly uh longton who rode count fleet with john longman would be uh impeccable and uh, earl sandy who did who rode Gallant Fox were those were, were great jockeys, and then more recently, of course, you had Mike Smith on Justify and uh, Espinosa on American Pharaoh, and Steve Cawthon at all of eighteen. Although he won the Triple Crown on a firm, you might think, you know, in a field like this, I think I'll go for Arcaro over the teenager. It's tough, but you can't forget, of course, that Earl Sandy was a four-time leading money winner. So, I mean, you you can't sell the older people short here, not at all. And I am fortunate to have met John Longton near the end of his life in California, an absolute honor. And certainly you can't throw him out either. Ed Bowen joining us here on In the Gate, the author of Lucky 13. So in terms of these horses' makeup, their breeding, and everything else, what commonalities do they have? Most of them were uh, what you call very well bred, not necessarily the absolute height of fashion. If they had all been submitted to the yearling market, they'd have been a wide range. Uh, Seattle Slough being one of the few horses that was that Triple Crown winner that was sold, he he went for a very modest price. He has made his pedigree since then, but he only sold for like seventeen thousand. He was a son of bold reasoning. But most of them were very, very well-bred horses. They also, for the most part, had trainers with considerable experience with good horses, but that's not necessarily the case. But the commonality, I think, would probably be they were very well-bred thoroughbreds with very, very substantiated bloodlines. And even Seattle Slough, even though he was inexpensive, his he came from the Bold Ruler Sire line and his his female family was, was distinguished, but um, he, he's kind of the outlier in terms of price, an outlier not only in that he was sold as a yearling, and, uh, but an outlier in terms of price for his time. Sir Barton sold uh, privately for 10000 
but at, th- at that time, 10000 was a very, 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 very high price for a two-year-old. All right, now we've gotten into a deep dive on these 13 horses, but if you're watching a race with all 13 of them, do you really have to overthink this? I mean, Secretariat has the record in all three Triple Crown races. Who's beating him? Well, the fact is that time is is, is a very beguiling way of evaluating horses, but time of a race is a function of many things, including the quality of the horse. I don't, I mean, Secretariat's Belmont was so sensational, but he didn't really duplicate that. And he set the world record for a mile and an eighth later on. And the horse that beat his world record was a horse named Simply Majestic. And Simply Majestic and Secretariat should never be in the same sentence, except this one, which I'm now ending, period. <laughs> so the, the the great time, you cannot, can't overlook the fact that this horse had the record for all three Triple Crown races, but that doesn't mean that against the field of a dozen other truly great horses that he would that he would have his way. I'm not saying he, he he didn't beat a lot of good horses. And that's another aspect of Triple Crowns. You you have to guard against thinking that by the very nature of this being a Triple Crown winner, he has beaten all of the good horses three straight, the most important races. And so it's easy to then lapse into thinking, well, maybe there wasn't a very strong field. And I think that's very unfair to all these horses to think that they were lucky, and no pun intended, that the, the lucky 13, the title is meant to say horses were lucky to have all the combined elements of quality and courage and so forth. It doesn't mean that they were quote, lucky, lucky to win. They were just lucky to be born with all that combination of uh, of requirements. You can also say that Sham was unlucky. He might have been a Triple Crown winner had he not been three years old in 1973. <laughs> well, yeah, you can, you can always do that. But if he had been uh, three-year-old in uh, 71, he'd have gone up against another bunch of good horses and so forth. So, the easiest one to deal with that is uh, Alidar. Alidar put ahead in front, right in the middle of the stretch. It's Alidar and Affirm battling back along the inside. We'll test these two to the wire. Affirmed under a left-hand whip. Alidar on the outside driving. Affirmed and Alidar heads apart. Affirm's got a nose in front as they come on to the wire. Gosh, how unlucky he was to be against Affirm, but if Alidar had been fold uh, a year earlier, he'd have been against uh, Seattle Slough. He had been fold a year later. He'd have gone against spectacular bids. So <laughs> you can play that various ways. Of course, it might have been just 12 Triple Crown winners because the 1943 Derby won by Count Fleet almost didn't happen because of World War II. There were restrictions on extra trains, and without a large crowd, Churchill Downs came close to canceling it. Does that sound familiar? What similarities can you draw to the running of this year's Derby, given extenuating circumstances? Well, I was talking to a fellow sports illustrator the other night, and he says, one thing about Country House, he will go down as the horse with the longest reign as a Kentucky Derby winner. I haven't quite put that spin on it yet, but he will be the Derby winner from from May of 19 to September of night of 2020, so he, he has a distinction there. But I may be a little bit old school, but I I still when it when it comes down, I try to I've tried to think about horses from the standpoint of I imagine what they're doing with this exercise 
is using the horse's very best race and irrespective of whether that horse could duplicate that race consistently. I always also like to look at it in terms of the overall career. And I come to, I get into loggerheads with my own wishes because by putting citation first among triple crown winners, I am violating one of my, one of my efforts to, to not forgive him of things that went wrong. The oddity of Citation's career was that he, he was injured late in his three-year-old season, skipped, missed his whole four-year-old season, came back and ran at five and six, and it's impossible to think that he wouldn't have been better as an older horse uh, had he not been injured. But leaving that aside, if you if you envision Secret, uh, Citation having retired at the end of his three-year-old year, like so many of these Triple Crown winners did, at that point, he was 27 for 29. He had not only swept the Triple Crown over nice horses, including Coal Town. He had a series later in the year when he won a, the Mile Sizenby against older horses on Wednesday and the Jockey Club Gold Cup against good older horses at two miles on Saturday. So so if if, if, if Citation had retired at the end of his three-year-old year, he, he would have had an aura that the anticlimactic aspects might have chipped away at. But again, there I am. I like to say I look at a horse as what he did and not excuse what he didn't do. But I'm doing that despite my my, my hope and putting citation as, as the greatest career of a Triple Crown winner. And I'll tell you another horse that I think gets uh, shunted around a little bit is affirmed. If you think of a perfect career of an American racehorse as a brilliant two-year-old, a uh, classic winner at three, and then a handicapper at four. The handicap division sadly has been weakened over the years, but affirmed was about as nearly perfect as a career can be. And when he did have a losing streak, it was uh, it started when he was disqualified in the Travers. Then he was defeated by Seattle Slough in the Marlboro Cup in, in the first meeting of Triple Crown winners. But I've always heard, I've always believed that a great four-year-old should beat a great three-year-old. And so I don't knock that, not affirmed for for losing to Seattle Slough when he was three and Slough was four. And then the next year, affirmed had his turn as being the great four-year-old. And he'd beat a great three-year-old in the Jockey Club Gold Cup when he defeated Spectacular Bid. So I have affirmed rated third among Triple Crown winners and Seattle Slough fourth and Count Fleet fifth. It is unfortunate that the coronavirus has forced the general shutdown of business racing in particular, but it gives us a chance to have a fun discussion like this, and there is never a bad time to have such a thing. So thank you so much, Mr. <laughs> Bowen, for sharing this with us. I could do this all day long. Well, I could too, and uh, my mother always was aware that she was raising a not particularly normal son, so uh, I could have done it all day long when I was 12. <laughs> Our thanks once again to Ed Bowen, Jason Scott, and Dan Heim. If you have kids, you've probably been involved with running bake sales or pancake breakfasts or raffles, stuff like that, all in the name of raising funds for their after-school activities. These raise more money than simply passing the hat. In Louisville, Kentucky, an annual big fundraiser is students volunteering to clean up at Churchill Downs after the fancy people have left the Oaks and Derby. Half-eaten hot dogs, wrappers, and beer cups. 
Sometimes infield vendors run their stands as fundraisers too, with youth groups stocking all the food and drink. But now with Derby 146 to be run on Labor Day weekend, these youth groups' efforts are teetering on the brink. Because school might not have started yet, those sports and clubs would begin with no revenue stream for all these school-aged elves. And without that core of volunteers, the millionaires' row guests might actually have to pick up after themselves. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Maybe even those geniuses at America's Best Racing and their Fan Choice Awards. Maybe they'll think to include us. Well, Haley's Comet may come around before that. But you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this. And we'll see you next time.